You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White. Hey, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thanks for tuning into the show, however it is that you found it. Super glad that you did. If you've got any questions about anything, you can email me directly at nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com or you can go to my website, nowhere to run radio.com and hit the contact button. Also on the website, you'll see a place where you can sign up for the newsletter, which should be coming out in a few days. And um, although I'll be at the conference, the first and second, uh, the conference, yep, first and second, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, the politics of religion.com website, more information about that. That's exciting. Finally finished the uh, presentations that I'm doing there yesterday, kind of cutting it down to the to the wire. Finally got the the movie fact checked and ready to go, and and all in a format that will be easily digestible. So that's ready to go. Finally done. I haven't turned the other one into a movie yet. It's been like probably the craziest I don't know month ever. Just been really busy, but. Um, and then my grandfather did pass away. It had been, uh, just a few days and we did the funeral and, uh, spoke at the funeral and all that stuff. So that was, that was not fun, but it was, it was good. Thanks for your prayers. It was a really peaceful passing and everything was as good as can be. Uh, the reports are that he was, he said he was, had been ready for, for two months. He had read the Bible twice and, and <laughs> twice through and he was just, uh, a, a pretty, in a, in a pretty good shape, uh, uh, spiritually, I, I believe so. Everything's good there, and everything. So, but it has been as far as emails and stuff. Sorry for not getting back with you guys, and I will try to get back on that here in a little bit. All right. So, what I'm going to do with this show is talk a little bit about what I talked about last time, which is the woman that rides the beast and this new theory that um, I have learned about and have been studying more about. And I know most of you are thinking, oh, no, Chris is spiraling out of control into a, a you know, prophecy dungeon. We'll never get him back and he'll never be talking about normal things ever again. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I am spiraling out of control, but I don't think so. The, the reason I feel so confident about it is because of the further research and how biblical this idea is. And I mean, it is like explicit and I hope to show you some more things that I've been finding, but I'd also like to sort of talk about some of the emails that people sent. So I've just copied and pasted a lot of the things that people said, and we'll discuss some of it. I think it's good right now just to be really transparent about all of it to sort of bounce some ideas off each other, just to see, you know, if this is wrong, I don't want to, <clears throat> I don't want to do anything with it, you know. Um, but I think a lot of the things that I've heard so far are just, uh, I think, easily explainable within the context of it. I, I've really I'm really interested in this because, well, for lots of reasons, because uh, I think a lot of the things that I that I do or want to do projects are about really have the one common factor, and that is that it's it's not something it's something that needs to be done. That there's a there's a gap there where nobody's filling it. You know, it's sort of like see a need and fill it. I think is sort of the is a way that I would describe sort of the <clears throat> decisions that I make about projects and stuff like that. So in that sense, I really want to, to do this if it's correct. But if it's not, I don't want to even touch it, of course. And I, anyway, let me just talk about some of the things I've been finding. Now, it's a prerequisite, if you're going to listen to this show, to listen to the previous one, which is called uh, Who is the Woman That Rides the Beast? 
where I discussed that uh, the theory that the woman that rides the beast is the city of Jerusalem. Now, um, had a lot of questions and stuff about that, but again, it's a prerequisite to go ahead and listen to that one if you haven't listened to that. So go ahead and stop this one, download the other one, uh, and listen to it first because it'll be important. So, okay, so moving on to some issues that I've been finding. This is an interesting one, I, I think. The, the idea that the, pro, that the woman that rides the beast is the, the blood of prophets. She, she is, uh, she's drunk, of course, with the, with the blood of the martyrs and the saints, you know, this idea of witnesses too. Um, but also the prophets. It says in Revelation 18, first in verse 20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. So they have been killing the prophets, and God's vengeance now is on them because of their killing of the prophets. Uh, Revelation 18.24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and all that were slain on the earth. Even the idea of drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Um, there's there's two different groups here, and there's there's uh, lots of different ways to, to sort of show this. Uh, but without boring you, I think it's pretty obvious in, in, the, in the text itself. But, <clears throat> of course, uh, in, in terms of this is a futuristic thing that Jerusalem does, and, and the Antichrist setting up his seat in Jerusalem, which I believe is explicit in Daniel 11, uh, 45, and, and other places of Second Thessalonians 2. I think you can infer it by him sitting in the temple as God. But uh, nevertheless, it, the idea is, of course, the abomination of desolation, which is tied to, as you look in Daniel, uh, and you look in Revelation, and you look in Matthew 24, the worst persecution of Christians that's ever happened in in the history of the world, and this will this will become really clear as you see the very new movie that will be out April second, um, because the, I really spend a lot of time on the abomination of desolation, and I think it will be absolutely clear, very unambiguous as far as that goes, that you'll understand that the worst persecution of all time uh, will its epicenter will be uh, in Judea, in Jerusalem. And it starts the moment that he sits in the temple. And so I think that we're, we're okay there. But the interesting thing here is the prophets. That's kind of what I wanted to talk about. Now, now we see um, Jesus has laid the, the blood of the prophets entirely at the feet of Jerusalem in certain cases. One In Luke 13, 30, 34, it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered the children together and the, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Matthew 23, 29 through 36 is something. It's kind of a long, longer passage, but I'm going to read it just because kind of get a, a feel of something. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourself that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure, uh, fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send you, send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you, you that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacchaeus, the son of uh, Barachius, whom you slay between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now, now listen to this from Luke thirteen thirty-three. Nevertheless, I must walk to this day and tomorrow and the day following, for it, this is Jesus speaking, for it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, you can look at this in a different translation, like the International Standard, for instance, says that it is impossible 
for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. And it says here in the King James, for it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. Now you can look interbiblically uh, with the, of the prophets that were killed. They were killed either by high priests. They were killed, as he talks here about Zacharias, um, killed you know between the temple and the altar, obviously in Jerusalem. We can see that they were actually killed in Jerusalem. And, and Jesus here lays the blood uh, of literally from Abel to, to Zacharias on uh, the doorsteps here. Uh, as he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. And I would say the verse right before that, saying it cannot be the prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if that's like a dogmatic statement. I don't know if there's a reason why. But I would say when you look at Revelation 18 and you say that the blood of prophets are found in them and of saints, uh, that, that you know, what other city kills prophets? And at this point, you know, people will say, well, it's not a city. You know, even though it says, you know, who is this uh, and whom the woman you saw is a great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. No, it's not a city. It's actually just the source of all uh, evil in the world or source of all idolatry or source of all fi- false religion. Again, as we'll get into later, this idea that it's the source of all evil that ever has been or ever will be is something that we are reading into the text. We seem to add the word all to mother of harlots. Um, we'll see in the book of Hosea, clearly calling Jerusalem mother of harlots, but we've added the word here, mother of all harlots, or mother of all the abominations of the earth, as sort of, um, that's just what we add to it. It's our interpretation of the word mother, um, where, you know, Paul calls Jerusalem mother of us all. I mean, the, 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 the Hebrew mindset and the biblical mindset does not attribute that idea to mother. It doesn't call it the mother of all harlots that have ever been or ever will be. Again, this is something that is a few in the future context as well. But what I want to say about that really is that if you say that this is the source of all the things that are wrong in, in the world or whatever you want to say about that spiritual Babylon, then why does verse 16 of, of chapter seven, 17 say, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast will hate the harlot, make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Again, you, you have... Her just riding the beast. If you, if you want to call anything the source of all the evil in the world or whatever, it's the beast itself. The seven heads uh, over time, I think, uh, the spirit of Antichrist. There's your problem, you know. Satan is your problem. She's riding the beast and that the kings, which are absolutely under his authority, where it says um, the, you know, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they will receive authority for only for one or for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb. What do they do Little a uh, few verses later? And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, they will hate the harlot, make her desolate, naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. So the kings of the earth go to war and destroy her. They are totally subservient, 100%, to the kingdom of the beast. Now, if that's like the source of all spiritual idolatry and everything else, it doesn't make any sense why... Uh, She's totally destroyed by the beast itself. That doesn't even compute at all. But anyway, let me move on to some of these things. I'm going to spend a million hours in this. Okay, so there's some interesting stuff in Jeremiah and corresponding in Revelation. This is what it says in Revelation 22 and 23. And the voice of the harpers and musicians and other pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman or whatsoever craft he 
uh, he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of the millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee, and the light of the candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee, for the merchants were the great men of the earth, for by the sorceries were all the nations deceived. Okay. So, no more voice of the bridegroom, uh, no more harpers and musicians, pipers, trumpeters, and all this stuff shall be found no more in thee. And listen to Jeremiah 7.34. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judea and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate." Okay, so it's a clear, this this idea of the voice of the bridegroom is really only used a few times in the Bible. That We're looking at them right here. The corresponding between this prophecy of Jerusalem, the voice of the bridegroom, will uh, not be uh, heard anymore in you, you. And, of course, the corresponding thing in Revelation where it's talking about the, the city of uh, whatever it is that we're talking about here. The voice of the bridegroom will no longer be heard in the woman as well. Now, here's the interesting thing that connects... Babylon to Jerusalem. The other time that this is used now is used of speaking of Babylon, which uh, is is going to be past tense. Babylon is completely destroyed, and this is what uh, is said of it. Moreover, I will take from thee the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone, and then the light of the candle. Corresponding exactly, of course, if you if you notice to the verse in Revelation. Uh, eight, eight, Revelation eighteen twenty two and twenty three. I mean, it's a mirror image. This is not something spoken of a lot. This is something spoken of relatively few times. The issue is, is that it's spoken of here, Babylon being fallen. Um, clearly, a, a picture of Babylon. But the problem is, is that two other times it's only spoken of one time. This idea of the voice of the bridegroom never be heard anymore. In you, it's spoken of in regards to um, the prophecy against Babylon. But it, it's also spoken of twice more in regards to a future prophecy of Jerusalem. It's like, Babylon, you're going to get what what take taken care of you, but Jerusalem, you, uh, it's the same thing is going to be happening to you. This is a judgment on Jerusalem. Now, this is one of many ways to show that Jerusalem and Babylon were connected in a spiritual sense. In the same way that we saw with the two witnesses, that they were killed, as it says... Um, in, in Sodom, in Egypt, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make a war against them, overcome them, and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also a Lord was crucified. So, it, again, it, it makes sure you know that it's where the Lord was crucified. It's in Jerusalem. Um, but it's spiritually Sodom in Egypt. And you can actually find direct references um, to the connection between Sodom and Egypt, both for different specific sins that Jerusalem had done. So this is not a, a concept, as I thought before, that didn't have a tremendous amount of scriptural precedent. It, it's absolutely uh, a clear case. And I don't have that uh, those notes on that. But, um, but anyway, so I would say that's a pretty darn interesting one, right? Uh, Revelation 18, 20, uh, 22-23 Speaking of the woman that rides beast, the light of the candle shall shine no more in thee, the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more in thee, uh, for the merchants were the great men of the earth, the sorceries all nations deceived. And then, of course, Jeremiah 7.34, then it will cause to cease from the cities of Judah, from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for they shall all be desolate. Okay, uh, moving on. Some other just interesting things. Jeremiah 13.13, 13, then thou shalt say to them, 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests, and all the prophets, and the inheritance of Jerusalem with drunkenness. Corresponding to Revelation 13.27, And I have seen thee, thine adulteries, thine uh, names, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and the abominations on the hills and in the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem, wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? Uh, when shall it once be? Jeremiah 32.31 this city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight. Um, this is Jeremiah speaking of it as a great city. Remember last time I said that the term great city was so rare, uh, used in Revelation a few times to refer to the city, uh, the great city where Sodom and Egypt, uh, also where the Lord was crucified, clearly Jerusalem there. And then it's also specifically when in the in the interpretation of who the woman that rides the beast and the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And again, we'll get to questions about that before. Most people are like, no, Jerusalem isn't the place where all the kings of the earth reigned. And that's the problem that we're having here, is everybody's trying to interpret this based on what we've already seen. When it gives no indication to look for what you've already seen in terms of of this future prophetic fulfillment spoken of. The Bible tells you what's going to happen in the future. It says, look, there's going to be an Antichrist. He's going to cause, it's going to be the worst persecution of ever, ever. People are going to literally worship him as if he is God in the same way that they worship God in the temple in Jerusalem in the future. And that moment itself will start this persecution of, of the saints that was going to exceed all others. We're told about all the stuff, the reign of the Antichrist. We're interpreting this in light of what is going to happen, not as what is yet to happen. He is going to create a world government. And uh, that world government is in the sense that we're talking about this uh, having, you know, the kings of the, the kings uh, being subservient and ruling over many waters and things like that. Again, you have to remember that this city will be turned on by the Antichrist system itself. Which I think that as we looked and noticed in, in Isaiah and stuff like that, peace, peace when there is no peace. There's a peace agreement that's going to be made uh, with Israel that's going to obviously focus on Jerusalem, a contentious city in that sense, uh, uh, with its geographical you know, uh, enemies, etc. And uh, without getting into too much of that, let's just continue here. Um, this is an interesting one. In Revelation 16, 19, where it all again speaks of that word, that phrase, the great city, it says it's distinguished from the cities of the nations. Now, if you know much about uh, the Bible, that should make your ears perk up. And the great city, which was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give, it, to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So this great city, which is divided into three parts, and contrasted with the cities of the nations. That is um, to, and we can see that even in uh, the New Testament, the idea of that contrasting things with the nations still retains the, the clear dichotomy that it had in the Old Testament. It was, it was Israel and the nations. And in a sense, you also have that in the New Testament too, except it incorporates believers as well. To, to create a dichotomy of the great city divided in three parts and the cities of the nations, I think, is a pretty interesting thing as well. Now, you know, an interesting thing that I also sort of was digging up here about, First um, Peter speaks of, uh, he says, when he's wrapping up the letter, he says, that church that is in Babylon, elected together with you, salute you as do, does Marcus, my son. Now, I, I remember this from doing the research into Catholic apologetics, that, of course, 
the cat the Catholics want to prove that Peter went to Rome. You, you can't really prove it uh, anywhere in the Bible or whatever, because they they obviously want to make Peter the bishop of Rome. Uh, there's a lot of theology that they've got. They, they pretty much need him to go to Rome and to be like the, the all reigning bishop in order for like all this stuff to work. So this is actually, funnily enough, the, the Catholics will actually say, because there's only, it's the only possibility in the entire Bible that Peter went to Rome is if they actually say that, oh yeah, Rome's Babylon. Yeah, we're totally Babylon. Um, they would never, of course, admit to that except for they have to find some way to get Peter in Rome. Now, most people will reject that and say uh, a number of things. First of all, there's, there is good reason to think that he wasn't in Rome. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to think that, but there's really good reasons to think that he's referring to Jerusalem here. There's actually good textual interbiblical reasons. Uh, the very first thing that he says out of the gates, First Peter 1, verse 1, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, he is writing this letter to people that are scattered. Um, it, it's it's a it's a smallish point, but I mean he is he is writing to those scattered. It seems like at some place he would include him, himself among those that have been scattered. Why were they scattered? Well, because of tremendous persecution on the Christians in Jerusalem at this time. It was incredibly dangerous at this time to be a Christian. Peter, obviously very prominent. Uh, and so this is suggested that uh, this was a, a, to prevent more persecution of those that lived in Jerusalem by, by making it cryptic. I recognize that that's a little bit speaking out of both sides of my mouth in one sense, in, in the sense that the Roman Catholics essentially declare Babylon to be Rome there to fit with their theology, and I'm essentially declaring Babylon to be Jerusalem here to fit with my theology. Um, the other option is that he could be in Babylon uh, the, the itself, which people have taken two different ways to say that is that there's like some outpost that could have been called Babylon that maybe he was writing from there, or perhaps he was writing from uh, maybe a group of Jewish believers had congregated in Babylon and maybe he went on to a journey to, to Babylon. And all those things are extra biblical conjecture, but I think from the Bible you can make a case that Peter was stationed in Jerusalem all throughout this whole time. Paul visits Peter when he comes to Jerusalem. We see uh, in the in the uh, council of Jerusalem, uh, Peter being there. We are, or we see all this stuff. Peter's always there. He doesn't seem to have ever, ever left. So I think that you can actually make a biblical case uh, of that. But nevertheless, not a strong point, just something that, that's out there. Uh, a lot of this stuff, uh, I also got some of these things I'm reading now, especially from uh, Charles Cooper's book, and took some notes in that as well. <clears throat> um, this wife relationship, Jeremiah three twenty describes uh, this this sort of wife relationship that he has with um, with the house of Israel, and that I think is you know where we get some of these these ideas about the woman that rides the beast, saying you know, hey, I'm no uh, what does she say about uh, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see it. Verse 7 of 18 says, uh, In the measure that she glorified herself and gives luxuriously in the same measure given to her torment and sorrow, for she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. And of course we see this as uh, as this only one with a wife relationship. So there are certain cities that are called whores. Tyre, as we mentioned last week. Uh, we mentioned Nineveh. 
which is called a whore after it had already repented in sackcloth and ashes hundreds of years later was called a whore after returning back to its old ways. In fact, Babylon was also called a whore. Um, and of all of those cities that are called whores, um, the one that you can actually make a case had a right relationship with God, as I think is required for the text, is only Jerusalem. It's the only option. That And, and of course, to the the... Scripture after scripture that I could pull up here about it calling um, Jerusalem not just a whore for its its idolatry for its and every time it does it speaks of it because they went after other gods because they did this and you have to imagine this is going to be worshiping Satan as if he is God in the temple and not only doing that declaring him to be not just their Messiah but God in the flesh but also somehow uh, promoting him and causing other people to join in on this too. And this happens for some time. If people believe for real that God is here and has showed up, if such a delusion can be thrust on the world, then, of course, this, this idea of bringing gifts to him, just like we saw last week in, in, the, in the Solomon prefiguration and, and people bringing the merchants from all over, not just... The merchants were selling them stuff, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that because you know we did the thing last week about all the different things that they were bringing. A word study of those things can only yield Jerusalem. Not only it's interesting, not only as we discussed, they were things that were needed for the temple, particular ointments, or things that were needed to build the temple, or offerings uh, that were given to God in the temple that would need to be bought in bulk. But it's interesting, a lot of those things are not things that you would find within the confines of Jerusalem as well. A lot of the specific things would need to be imported as we as we see uh, being done there. And again, like I said, go to the million verses like Isaiah 121. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteous lodged in it, but now murders. Jeremiah 13.27 I have seen thine adulteries and thy uh, names lewdness's city. So, um... Let's get into some of the things that people said. So some of the emails that people sent me and talk about them. One, uh, some of these were going on the comment section of my uh, on my website. There's something like 17 comments on there right now. And I'll just mention some of the ones that were mentioned. Um, one person says, uh, does Jerusalem sit on many peoples? Um, and we talked about that before. Of course, Jerusalem doesn't now. Um, this is not... Nothing in this text requires this to have already happened. Uh, it doesn't say the, the, the mother of all abominations that ever have been or ever will be. Uh, these, these are something a future event. And so if the Antichrist does in fact rule from Jerusalem and people believe that, that God is there and he's ruling one world government with the HQ there in 11, Daniel 11.45, which I think makes that clear and, and uh, as I mentioned, a few other places, then yes, it would, it would sit on many people's end. And... Um, and then the next question says, and upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And he says, was Jerusalem the mother of harlots or or was Jerusalem the mother of the abominations of the earth? And uh, um, I would say to that, I'm going to quote from some verses in Hosea. Um, because I think that we, be, and I think that if you read through 17 and 18 with this in mind, trying to think, is there anything here that causes me to think that this has to be the source of all evil in the world, or this has to be something that is um, like where all the bad stuff comes from, as opposed to some future harlotry, uh, then you'll find that the only thing that causes you to believe that is the word mother. 
And that's what's interesting about Hosea when it says things like, Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall in the sight, and I will destroy thy mother. Uh, speaking of Jerusalem, we can go to Hosea 4 and 5. Hosea is pretty clear on this uh, connection. Hosea 10:14. <clears throat> Therefore shall Atoma arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled, as Shalom spoiled Betharabel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed into pieces upon her children. Again, the mother, the children being the people, the city being the, the mother, speaking of Jerusalem here. I think it's pretty clear in Hosea 1, and we're going to write, read right on through the end of Hosea 1 to the beginning of Hosea 2. Then shall the children of Judea and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come out of the land, for the great for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say, unto, uh, say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Remuah, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and let her adulteries from between her breasts. Lest they strip her naked, and set her as the day she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like dry land, and, and slay her with thirst. And you can, of course, read that in the context uh, to recognize where it says right there, the children children of Judea. That's the the kind of idea here. Children of Judea uh, is, is, in that sense, Jerusalem is a mother. Uh, Paul says exactly the same thing, Galatians 4.26, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Um, so, in the sense here that, he, that Hosea is talking about, the children of Judah, the children of Israel, as he said there, um, the people of Israel are going, are the, the, in that sense, the mother of harlots. If you have harlots, their mother is Jerusalem in this Old Testament and I would suggest New Testament context. Um, abomination, mother of abominations. You have to look up the word abomination to find that it is something particularly to do with religious uh, abominations. Uh, idols, particularly idol worship. Um, Jesus says that which men uh, highly esteem is an abomination to the Lord. Essentially saying that idols, idols, that which is highly esteemed by men, idols, are an abomination to the Lord. Idols are abomination. Of course, we can look up the abomination in from the Old Testament to the New Testament, get the same context. It's idolatry of the worst kind. They, uh, the abomination that's happening, is unlike anything that's ever, ever, ever been. It's the granddaddy of all. And again, I'm sort of beating a dead horse here. So I want to move on to some other things that uh, people have said here. Um, uh again here somebody says in revelation 17 5 6 the woman's name is a secret sign that means something deeper um the name itself could convey so in revelation 17 18 we see the name was the name not of a woman but of a city the great city and i believe the city is babylon why stay with me on this babylon is not signified merely by material itself but by enormous system of idolatry connected with it and that is why the the explanation to the secret sign name followers and that is why the mother of harlots and the mother of abominations of earth. Again, this idea that it is the a system, an enormous system of idolatry, sort of the source of all evil in that sense of idolatry or whatever, you still have to explain why the woman is only riding the beast and why the beast uh, kills her. And the smoke of her torment is, is caused by the kings of the earth uh, who are under the authority of the beast. If anything is the source of that stuff, it's, it's the beast that she's riding that turns on her. <clears throat> essentially. So, you know, I can't see it as a, a secret, um, you know, power of lawlessness, if you will, because that, that 
secret power of lawlessness is is what the beast itself is writhing in its heart you know if i was to make a distinction about which one was the the real enemy there um it would be the beast that she's riding she's just along for the ride saying hey look i don't even um you know i i'm not a widow i've got a husband kind of thing okay so moving on to another one somebody says here oh he quotes zachariah in a particular quote and the quote that he Quotes is interesting, too. I, I, if you get a chance to check it out on my eSword, I, I looked that same up. And, and oddly enough, although I can't find any commentators uh, so far that agree... Again, if you're familiar with commentators, most commentators will... will uh, especially the old ones will go somewhere to say this is Rome. And we talked a lot about that issue of the seven hills, the seven mountains of Rome, and how, for lots of reasons, it can't be the seven mountains, which takes the whole Rome... The, the crux of the Rome argument is two things. People say, okay, the seven mountains. And the other thing is, well, it's the source of all you know, evil in the world. They're doing the same thing that, that their other people are doing, saying, well, it must. we're looking for something. Whatever we're looking for here has to be like the source of all evil. And that's where everybody's going wrong, because they're, they're hunting whatever in their minds is the worst thing in the world, right? So people come up with all kinds of different theories about this, because they, well, they have different interpretations of what they view the worst thing in the world is. But that's not what the text is saying. The text doesn't tell you to go look for the worst thing in the world. The text tells you explicitly that this is going to be a, a future thing that happens that is talked about very clearly in prophecy. If you understand that, you know, what's going to happen in terms of what the Antichrist is going to do in his career, then you don't really have any trouble uh, as far as finding the worst thing that ever is going to happen in the world because it's clearly laid out. The only problem is for us is that it hasn't happened yet and a lot of people want to find something in prophecy that they can say, well, this has already happened yet, so I can call it that. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so he quotes this thing from Zechariah, and I looked it up in Esword, and it, it actually, the corresponding verse, as you'll see there, is talking about Revelation 17. It's connecting this verse with a woman. Um, I've seen the verse that this person is quoting here used to prove that, uh, you know, aliens were the source of all evil in the world. I think a particular guy has this quote on the front page of his website. Who, um, anyway, long story short. Uh, the woman in the basket in this particular quote is, from what commentators seem to, the general consensus, is Israel itself, is Jerusalem, and it's post-captivity in Babylon. So to have it be taken back to the land of Shinar is again uh, indicative that the woman is, and when it says this is wickedness, it's again talking about the woman. Um, it's, it, you know, there's lots of things happening in that verse, uh, talking about mostly materialism and some of the things that happened when Jerusalem came back from Babylon, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking, um, I don't want to go into the, all the specifics, but, but basically that verse agrees with my position, not, not the position that was stated there. I don't want to spend too much time on that. The next thing somebody said says, I do also think that people need to understand, as you said, that we would be what we'd be talking about here is a total global system merely centered in Jerusalem, as I think I understand what you're outlining. And so when when read all those verses which talk about how all the merchants and the seafarers stand far off because no one buys their cargoes anymore, we're actually reading about the total worldwide economic collapse. Those verses would not make a great deal of sense if they were talking strictly about the confines of the physical city itself as opposed to an entire global system. Well, I've got certain problems with that. First, I think just generally hermeneutics. You, you know, standing at a distance for fear of torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And even these ideas earlier on, and the woman you saw, which is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. 
we have to take a hermeneutic where this isn't really talking about a city. You can spiritualize anything you want at random. And then, of course, nobody gets to tell you if you're wrong or not. There's no dictionary of allegories. Um, when when it says, okay, I'm going to interpret what this woman is, and it tells you it's it's a city, and here it's saying that the merchants, are, merchants ships at a sea are, are watching the smoke of the city and weeping over it, 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 it takes a different hermeneutic to say this is generally something else. But in addition to that, you've got this list of items. Um, these aren't just random items. You know, as, as uh, I think that if anybody does a word study on this, especially in the Septuagint, um, where which is a Greek rendering, uh, so you can do exact correspondences to word phrases, but you don't have to do that. You can just do an English uh, uh, word search, too, or do a concordance to find out. These are the exact same things needed for temple worship to create the certain incenses that were needed and very specific sacrifices. And it says it in the same order. And when you start to find these exact same things, even like we looked at before, that, that phrase, gold and silver and precious stones, it's only... It's used specifically of the Antichrist sacrifices in Daniel. Um, there's lots of times that gold and silver are mentioned and stuff like that. But again, these specific phrases are specifically for the Antichrist and his offering. Um, it, to me, there is there isn't the text is not allowing you to take this as a general economic system collapse. This it's going out of its way. Spends two verses talking about frankincense and cinnamon and stuff for to prevent that very thing uh, for saying, hey, this is just general stuff, whatever. Um, this is talking about stuff that, that has recourse to the temple and temple worship, in my opinion. Okay, so moving on. A few different ones talking about the preterist view. Uh, so would the preterist view be worth mentioning here? That is the harlot being Jerusalem and the beast being Rome, circa 70 AD. Would seem to fit with the salient points in any case. Uh, the Jews were the chief enemies of the gospel initially, persecuting and shedding of blood in the early Christians, the saints, with Rome aiding her to persecution, at least for a while. The woman rode the beast, then Rome turned on Israel when she revolted, totally crushing the entire nation is one of the most horrific war wars the ancient world has ever seen. In this case, the city of Jerusalem itself, it was literally burnt with fire uh, with nearly a million people uh, put to the sword, fulfilling Jesus' predictions of distress. Okay, lots well, now... Lots of problems with that. Of course, Jerusalem is still here. Uh, this city would have not been any more uh, if if that was to be taken literally. The, the thing about the preterist view, and I, I tend to, I tend to not give it uh, any lip service a lot of times because I just it, it it it's such a different hermeneutic. We actually talked with this guy before. And he's a really great guy. He's a really good friend. Um, but I I can't I can't we it's like we're speaking a different language, you know. Um, we can't approach a text the same way. It's interesting that they, they have the same hermeneutic as I when they're interpreting how Antiochus or how this was fulfilled in 70 AD. We're right on the same page. We're like, yeah, man, totally was. That's that's awesome. You know, Antiochus did fulfill all that stuff. But then when it gets to the stuff that hasn't happened yet, then they go, you know, spiritualizing and, ca and you know, the sort of origin sort of view of, of, of the Bible, like anything you want is, is true. I, I can't take things that haven't happened yet and clearly haven't happened yet and say that they have happened. If I did, I would be abandoning the hermeneutic that, you know, we seem to agree on when we're talking about Antiochus or whatever. When you go to Zechariah, you see, okay, or Ezekiel, last few chapters of Ezekiel, actually, 
talks about, you know, the Millennial Kingdom is the, the Dead Sea, no longer dead anymore. It's got an outlet. I mean, it's fresh. There's fish in it. There's uh, that whole wilderness there is plush. The trees are going to be, you know, specific trees with like bearing the leaves are going to be medicine used for medicinal purposes and all these things. I mean, it goes out of its way. Details, details after detail after detail after detail, essentially saying this hasn't happened yet. Big red letters should be on the top of every page there. This hasn't happened yet. And we've got to say, well, eh, it has happened yet. Let me try to think of like, it's it's like a trying to interpret a dream. You could, you could interpret it any way you wanted to, as long as you were dedicated that, that you could in fact do anything with it that you wanted to. Um, so obviously I've got, I've got a issue to, with that. You take Antiochus, for example, and, uh, and you say, okay, yes, Daniel is talking about Antiochus and the, he talks about the abomination of desolation. There is no doubt. And we could do every little intricate study and apply a very good hermeneutic. And we're all on the same page. It's like, yeah, man, it's totally weird how he did that before. And then what do we do when the Lord says in Matthew 24, and when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Well, that happened hundreds of years ago in Jesus' time. So how is he going to say, when you see? When you see what? When you see it happen again? Well, that's a double fulfillment of prophecy right there. That's the Lord saying, look, this stuff happens in cycles. I think that when you look at it and it has come true, and you can find out through study that it's come true, it's fine. But when you, it's kind of like, I would say, pretty arrogant to say that that you should be able to find everything in the Bible that has happened in your lifetime and that there's nothing that needs to happen in the future when at least most of most of you, and those of you are not full preterists, think that the Lord is going to return. There's at least one event that's happening in the future that's, that's futuristic, you know. Um, certainly, there are some other events too. And uh, I think that God is 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 laid this out in a way that does not... Uh, somebody sent <laughs> this email saying, I think you you guys are just causing all this confusion by by taking a futurist position. You guys are just... Taking a futurist position just causes confusion. And I'll say this, and I want to say this really clearly, that this is this has been one of the most difficult things that I, I've ever done. Even when I did the Matthew 24 verse-by-verse study, I kind of was taking it lightly, you know, reading the commentary here and there. I knew in the back of my head that if I was actually going to do this right, I had to dive in and start learning the Old Testament, learning stuff, uh, the prophecies in that. I think that most people that know the Bible recognize that if they were going to really understand this, they would have to spend a lot of time on it. And it's hard. It's hard. And I think that because it's hard, people would rather say that when they come to something they don't understand, they either say, ah, well, you know, it's it, you can spiritualize it, you can make it be whatever you want. Or you can say it's already somehow taken care of. And, of course, that would be our flesh choice. We read what happens in Revelation. You know, everything in the sea dies. You know, every animal in the sea dies. Now, that hasn't happened yet. But people say, well, you know, uh, that was just, I don't know what you would do with that stuff. You know, I mean, but anyway, the whole book of Revelation is like that. Nobody wants to see everything in the sea die. Nobody wants to, to match that up with something else in the, in the Bible. And it's hard to do. So you just say, you just kind of give up, and that's the way I look at that. And so, I, I don't really respond a lot to the preterist or millennialist stuff because it's like we are on two different planets. You'll say that that one thing and then do another thing, as far as hermeneutic, and that's what it comes down to. And I can't go there with you, and I don't have time to go there with you. I can't convince somebody of what I think something 
at the at the very base level is that is is not rooted in the Bible, but rooted in their desire for the Book of Revelation to not happen to their family and friends. That's what I think that ultimately we're dealing with, and so it's not a battle I want to get into, and that's why when I did this movie that's coming out, it, it's really geared more towards pre-tribulational uh, believers because they're the only ones that are left that I think at least ostensibly try to take the Bible for what it says. I think that they, they have uh, some issues that need to be sort of discussed or whatever, but that you could convince them uh, of, the tr- of the error of the position because they at least, they at least you know, believe the Bible says what it says and means what it means, you know. Um, otherwise, I can't help anybody else. I mean, I can't, it's not, at least that's not my calling right now anyway, to, or what I feel is my calling. It could be totally wrong about that. Anyway, didn't mean to ramble about that so much. And I'm getting really close to the end here. So, um, okay, have you ever considered the Book of Revelation to be Book of Revelation to be heresy? Uh, somebody writes, and I actually have received an email about this recently from a, a, an email string. Somebody wrote, uh, I read some of the the article that was written and appeared to be somewhat scholarly, but and and, and really investigating it, it seemed like whoever wrote it had a very basic lack of of theology about some basic things. That was kind of like saying. Um, that let me let me pull it up real quick yeah the, the, the question is like this would jesus direct his disciples to rule with an iron rod instead of love i mean it wouldn't take too many too many uh word searches there in the old testament to, to prove that uh you know wrong would uh, uh jesus change salvation by faith back to salvation by works i don't know what what they're referring to there but uh you know i've read through the book of revelation lots and lots of times and never never got that out of it um, but I imagine it's just like anything else, people looking at the book of James and saying, you know, that James and Paul were, you know, just because it's just very basic uh, misunderstanding of just some basic theology. So it's kind of things like this. Would Jesus vomit you and me out of the kingdom of heaven for being only lukewarm? I mean, you know what I'm saying? This is kind of like some basic, you know, Christianity 101 sort of stuff. And again, I would suggest that it's sort of based on the idea of we would prefer that Revelation was heresy because it makes everything a lot less serious. The person says, One question I do have is the lack of blue cloth, a major color for the creation of the tabernacle. Tent, priestly robes, threads in the corners of the garments of men. I just find the phraseology extremely interesting, making the blue even more ominously missing. I think this is a good um, a good, good point. Uh, I haven't looked into this specific thing of, of the, why the blue is missing, but... In Revelation seventeen four, it says what the w- woman was clothed with, clothed with, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations, uh, filthiness, and her forn- fornication. Uh, Charles Cooper makes the point in his book that this array is the exact same phraseology used by the high priest in uh, the Old Testament. The what she's wearing is the exact same garments that the high priest wear. And uh, I don't have that book up here right now, but that's his claim that in the Septuagint, the exact same Greek phraseology used here to describe. Uh, so, and he makes the case that in that sense, there's sort of a high priest to to Satan here. That they are um, they are convincing the world to worship them. I've, obviously, they must believe he's the Messiah and and God, and that somehow or another they are uh, acting kind of as a high priest to this beast in which they're riding. So that is the the connection there. I think that's pretty interesting. But I haven't looked into that specific question, 
but uh, I definitely will get a chance to if I indeed go a little further in this research. Another person says, you've summarized the epicenter of the Antichrist will be actual physical city of Jerusalem. Not only is this is it scriptural, but it's also logical. What better place for the false Christ to set up his rulership in order to convince the world that he is in fact the true Christ than Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified. However, I think too much emphasis is put on trying to define the woman literally to confine her to a geographical location. The woman, the great city that sits upon the many waters and is the mother of all the abominations of the earth, is no more physical city than she is a physical woman. She embodies the entire deceived apostate world. The root of the meaning of the Greek word Babylon is confusion. The woman represents the ultimate confusion in the last days. Moreover, we know from Revelation 11 that the two witnesses will be killed in the physical city of Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. But the Holy Spirit wants us to see what the great city represents in a spiritual sense. The woman represents spiritual depravity, Sodom, and spiritual captivity, Egypt, through, though the eyes will be focused on the physical city of Jerusalem, it is a spiritual city of depravity and captivity will envelop the entire apostate world. Again, I think at the core of this is the idea that, that we have to find something here that is the source of all the evil, um, that is the source of all apostate religion and everything. And it, it doesn't say the mother of all harlotry from the beginning of time. It doesn't say all at all. The mother of harlots is all it says. It's the, it's the mother of the harlots. The harlots are have a mother, and that's what they are. I think that, uh, again, we have the problem here of them being turned on. The woman is turned on and killed. If, if, if the system itself, if all evil is killed by the Antichrist, you know, I mean, you've got, you've got Satan against Satan there, and I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Like, Satan's going to go ahead and take out the source of all evil in the world, you know, um, if it's spiritual or, or whatever. So, I, again, I think that that there is a good sense to say it's geographical location because it's what the Bible clearly says when interpreting itself. If the Bible continued in its allegorical phraseology and kept saying, you know, and the woman did this and the woman did that, but it goes on to to give consistent idiomatic representations and, and specific representations of a city. Besides saying, hey, it's a city, it also talks about, you know, the merchants and their ships seeing the smoke from the city, from the sea. We're talking about the... Um, continued ship ports, the importing things to it. I mean, we again, all the Old Testament references to a city being the mother, the city being um, the source of the who kills the prophets, the city being all these things, just in spades, you know. So I would say there's every reason to say it's a specific geographical city, just as it says. Okay, somebody else says here, first you described on your podcast the whore and the beast you describe the heads and the crowns as Antichrist. Now, I always took the heads and the crowns as representing the empire and the last head with the two crowns representing Britain and the USA, which did come right after the Roman Empire. What do you think of this? Also, the Antichrist, you stated would be a person, as, and, well, to be honest, I have a Jehovah's Witness family member who has described in, in great detail uh, why the Antichrist is the United States. States. Uh, since it was the League of Nations then fa uh, failed and returned as the UN how uh, the Antichrist head would die and he um, will rise, rise again. And this sort of sounds logical. What do you think of this? It would be great to see your answer in your video and you're working about the subject. Okay. Um, so there are a million and one different things that people do with this idea that, um, as it says here, the beast, uh, let's see, there were also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and one is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was... 
and is not, is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. So, um, there's this idea here that I think most people get, that whatever it is, that the seventh whatever has to um, die and come back again, and sort of have two reigns, in a sense. And um, that, of course, is corresponding over here to the beast of the sea, which uh, I stood sand of the sea, and I saw the beast rising up out of the sea, and had seven heads and ten horns, and on his head uh, ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like a dragon. I saw one of his heads that had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. So whatever he's doing here, man or king, uh, or kingdom, 42 months, three and a half years, he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in him. It was granted with him to make war with the saints to overcome them, and authority was given over him, over every tribe, tongue, nation. Those who dwell in the work will worship him, whose names have not been written, written in the book of life, slain from, and anyone who has an ear, let him hear. So, so people will worship him. And now we see that this same dude sits in the temple, you know, he sits in the temple as God, claiming himself to be God. Uh, this is a man, you know, and I, I think that you, 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 you don't have people, I mean, you could spiritualize that and say, everybody's worshiping America, man, that Lady Gaga and whatever. But I mean, let's be real. This is talking about a man. Daniel's talking about a man. We're talking about a man. And that's what it says. Clear as day here. The, there are also seven kings. Now, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or Seventh-day Adventist, we'll, we'll always preface this by saying, now we know in prophecy that whenever kings are spoken of, it's kingdoms. And they sort of they sort of put out that rule of prophecy before they get going. Let's go ahead and get the rules straight here. Anytime it says kings, it's a kingdom. And that's because they want this to be Rome, of course. So um, it can't be a king. It has to be... Uh, it has to be a kingdom, but it says here, there are also seven kings, five has fallen, one is, and one has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not himself, also the eighth, and of the seven is going to perdition. Why not just say it was a kingdom, you know? Why not? Uh, the, the Antichrist, this, this beast that comes out of the sea, claims himself to be God, wants people to worship him. There's no reason to say this is a kingdom. There's no, there's no reason whatsoever unless you start throwing in um, the seven, the seven mountains thing. And again, you, you, in order to do that, you have to, you have to just either pretend it's not there or whatever. I mean, look at Revelation from a Greek perspective, nine and ten. Go into Esau, check it out. The woman sits. It says in the King James, uh, it says there are also seven kings. Any other translation, just about, is going to say these are also uh, seven kings. It's, it's something you can study. Look for, look for uh, articles about it. Try to find somebody that knows Greek about it and try to figure out that because it's crucial. I think, again, the context clearly describes this as, as continuing to talk about seven kings. That's exactly what it means. Um, anyways, my, my point here is this, is that, uh, no, I don't think these are kingdoms. I don't think that when we get into, like, start talking about is it the U.S. and the U.N. and they, they lost one uh, country, now they've got this country or whatever. I don't see, I think that you can make, without ever leaving the Bible, without knowing a single thing about the United Nations, without knowing anything at all, you can describe, describe who the five antichrists that had blasphemous names that were, that were uh, speaking blasphemies as Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh and, all, and these ideas. Uh, you know, I know that, uh, that uh, what's his name, 
Good Game, Peter Good Game, talks about Nimrod and how he is going to rule twice and all these things. And I know there's probably some truth in that i'm sure it's got some good argumentation but i was talking with uh, some people the other day about that i just it doesn't it doesn't follow it doesn't make sense um thoroughly to me i don't think he makes a good antichrist in the bible maybe he maybe he is one but i think not as not as clearly as the others do um five you can find five antichrists in the bible whether they be the ones that i think it is pharaoh sennacherib nebuchadnezzar harman antiochus uh, and as one is, I think was Nero, and one is yet to come, and the one that is going to come again, a man, the spirit of Antichrist, has indwelled kings in the past, and he will do it again. And the next one he does will have that head killed. That's why it speaks of as a head being killed. It's talking about a man being killed. Now, I always kind of knew that, but now it actually makes sense. If the, if the five heads have been a part of the beast, the beast itself is the, is the Antichrist's manifestations over the centuries, over the years, the millennium. It's manifested certain times. It, the same power behind the beast, the, the dragon, ha, has has used has been a beast a few times and indwelled certain kings. The last time that he's going to do it, it's going to rule twice. That head, that manifestation, is going to be killed and have a wound and then come back. And who can make war against the beast in that whole situation? So, yeah. Okay, and then the final one I'll get to is from Nicole. Nicole, I still have some of your questions that uh, I could probably answer in another email, but I'll, I'll get these two done here right now. You said, though I still have to remain unconvinced about it being Jerusalem, as you pointed out, some things led me to the idea that Jesus' millennial uh, reign will be uh, from Jerusalem. So it would be hard to make it work Mystery Bab- uh, if Mystery Babylon is desolate, empty, but Jesus reigns from there. I tried looking it up and see if, actually spe- uh, if it's actually specific that Jesus reigns from Jerusalem and found this link. Others too, uh, do seem to lead a lot in that direction. It would actually uh, would be more near Be- uh, Bethlehem. I guess I would need to see more specifics. Okay, um, Zechariah 8.3 is uh says thus the now keep in mind this is all because it says there in i think revelation 18 that that jerusalem will be found no more i mean it's going to be a completely laid desolate now the the critique that most people would have with this view and the one that that is is the the most serious critique in my opinion is uh that well how how come then in revelation 20 when satan at the end of the millennial kingdom, okay, uh, battle revelation, okay, then a thousand years of peace. At the end of that thousand years, Satan is his chains let loose. He comes out, Gog, war of Gog Magog. Revelation twenty says Gog Magog happens. It may happen twice. I don't think so, but it at least happens. The only time we're given a specific time is at the end of the millennial period, in which case he comes against the quote beloved city. Now. The beloved city, people just infer, is Jerusalem. Uh, but there's no precedent for that. There's nowhere in the Bible that, that's the only time that phrase is used. Beloved city. Uh, and I was making the case last time that when you look at Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, the last few chapters, it describes a very interesting... This is this is where everybody recognizes is the millennial uh, situation. It's obviously in Israel, but it talks about this very center, the city where the temple is, because in the millennial city, get this, get this, there's a temple, okay? There's a big difference because the millennial city has a temple, and that's where it describes even where that city is in relation to two things, and it's not Jerusalem. I would suggest that wherever that is, it's called the beloved city. Um, now, uh, here's the here's the issue. She's saying that Zechariah 8.3, this is not Ezekiel, but Zechariah, says 
Thus says the Lord, I return unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts and the holy mountain. And this is uh, referring to, and I, I think pretty obviously, is Revelation 21 and following, uh, where it starts off Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. First, Now keep in mind, this is after the thousand years. Satan comes out, Gog, Magog, uh, gathered to, to war against... I don't even know how it all happens. We don't understand a lot about what is happening in the millennial period. Let's get that straight. Because there's enough people that want to go to war against God at the end of the millennial period to recognize that this isn't all saved people here. Um, So there's something different going on there. And there isn't an end of sin in that sense, at least because Satan is is let out. Uh, Anyway, so so after that... Then you have the great white throne judgment. Everybody that's ever died uh, outside of Christ will be raised to be judged at the end of the thousand years. Okay, Now, after the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand years is where we're at right now, Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth from the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no, and there was no more sea. And, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, uh, God of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And heard a great voice in heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God, and God shall wipe away the tears from their eyes, and shall be no more death. Um, and goes on here, I make all things new. Um, talks quite extensively about this. There's not going to be, uh, but the fearful unbelieving, blah, 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 blah. This is going to be for the children of Israel. And the wall, the great high wall, 12 gates, had these gates of 12 angels. And the names written thereon were, were upon the names of the 12 tribes of, uh, 12 tribes of the children of Israel. This new Jerusalem, after the millennial city, is, is set down. The new Jerusalem obviously is required because something's wrong with old Jerusalem. Um, it doesn't say a new city comes to every city in the world. But the Jerusalem requires a whole new thing. And this is like the climax of everything that Zechariah was talking about. This is like, this is the, the, the everything that everybody's been waiting for. And interestingly, if you go on and read this, you'll notice that there is no temple. It specifically states there's no temple here in this new Jerusalem. No temple required. The Lord itself is going to be the, the light for this whole thing. Um, it describes that in great detail. If you get a chance to read Revelation 20 and 21, it's the climax of the Bible. It's very, very important. Uh, and that's what's being referred to here. When, not the millennial city. So I would say, Nicole, that link that you sent is referring to the climax of, of Israel's history, what's been prophesied, the making an end of, of all this stuff, you know, the sin forever and all the other things that, uh, you know, clearly have not happened yet. Are, when it, in, in respect to Jerusalem will be when the new Jerusalem comes down. The there, in my opinion, you can read all starting at Ezekiel thirty-eight all the way to the end of Ezekiel, where it calls the city specifically, and the name of this city is the Lord is there, uh, Yahweh Shara something in Hebrew. It, it it it's clearly describing such a different city that it actually calls it a different name, um, and I think that that city with a different name is the beloved city spoken of in Revelation 20 that Gog Magog comes against. Therefore, Gog Magog has absolutely no reason to happen twice. Um, is The end of Ezekiel, starting at 38, all the way through to Ezekiel 40, whatever, is talking about the millennial city. And Gog Magog is in the context of that millennial city. Where they really are, don't have walled, it's unwalled villages and stuff. You know, we try to 
modern sort of people that are, you know, prophecy gurus and stuff are always trying to say, look, you know, they don't have walls anymore. So they're, they're a land living in peace. That's right now, you know. So when the Antichrist comes, he'll, he'll make it like that. But um, what's being described there is really peace. Yeah, a thousand years of peace, in fact, is the what's going to happen with that. With that. So it makes great sense that in that case. And with that, I'm going to call it um, a day here, about an hour long so far. So thanks for listening. Again, I really, I, I don't misinterpret my um, my tone for anything but zeal. I'm pretty excited about the prospect of this. And so let me hear your feedback. Um, you know, where am I going wrong here? Uh, and that kind of thing. You can express that in the comments or you can express that in the emails either way. So... I guess that's it. I'm probably not going to do another show before the end of the month and the conference. So if you want to sign up for the newsletter, you can do that at the website, nowheretorunradio.com. And I hope to see you at uh, in Fort Wayne. If you want to pick up tickets, you can do so at the politicsofreligion.com website. And I'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at nowheretorunradio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.